Hey, Pregnish listeners, whether you are currently trying to conceive or thinking about freezing your eggs, Shady Grove Fertility, an award-winning fertility center, has treatment options that work. More than 85,000 babies have been born thanks to the care at Shady Grove Fertility. So come on in, get tested, and see what your options are. Call 1-877-IT'S-TIME or visit ShadyGroveFertility.com to find a center near you. This is Pregnanish, a podcast dedicated to the stranger-than-fiction stories of modern family planning. Few infertility stories have been told more frequently and as narrowly than starting a family with a sperm donor. There are a lot of misconceptions in general in the field of infertility, but one thing I often hear about sperm donors is they do it just for the money. People picture like this young, hot college student who just can't wait to cash in on the the donor uh, salary he gets. But truly, that is not why most people I have interviewed donate. Another thing we don't think of when we think of sperm donation is how many people are going to be searching for donor siblings, donor connections. We know genetic testing is on the rise. We know more and more people are looking for their lineage. The other day, I met a woman who has a 17-year-old who's the product of a sperm donor. He is now looking for his donor siblings, and his mother is helping him. Now, she is not threatened by the donor. They celebrate the donor. They talk about the donor. And they still listen to the voice recording that the donor recorded 18 years ago. I met another single mom by choice whose daughter recently asked, On dates in the future, do I have to tell my date my donor number? I laughed when I heard it, but actually, she has a point. Now, this sounds totally sci-fi and funny and weird, but these are things we're going to need to think about. We know genetic testing is on the rise. We know more and more people are looking for their lineage. And while we know that biology doesn't create family, our lineage still matters to a lot of us. And today, we're going to explore both. First, we're going to hear from Selena, who has seen the incredible highs and lows that a path to pregnancy through sperm donation can entail. She's also not necessarily the first person people think of when they think of sperm donation, but being a single mom by choice, which Selena was, is a trend that's only going to grow in the next few years. Selena, thanks so much for joining us. For our listeners, who are you? Hi, my name is Selena, and I live in the L.A. area of California. And I worked for 18 years in the field of foster care and adoption. And now I work for an organization that helps nonprofits and foundations scale their work. You worked for 18 years in the field of foster care and adoption. And while you were working in that field, did you at any point want to become a mother or did that come later? Oh, I wanted to become a mother way before that. I think I wanted to become a mother as long as I had you know, since childhood, really, like that was something that I always thought would happen and would happen really young for me. Um, And then when I got into the work, it really took up a lot of my time. Um, I really thought it was hard to focus on my personal life because it's such a taxing kind of job. And then during that time, I also thought that I would foster and I would adopt. Um, So parenthood was always on my mind, for sure. And why didn't you, if you always thought you'd be a mom and you'd foster and adopt, because especially you worked in it, uh, why didn't you pursue that? Well, personally, there was a time when I was married while I was working foster care adoption, and I was very aware of the process. And in my marriage, I felt like we, I knew what involved, like everything that was involved in a home study. And I just knew that 
we weren't going to pass. <laughs> and part of it was that I don't think my my first husband was ready to be a parent in the way that I was ready to be a parent. So I knew the process and I knew that we weren't going to pass. And then our relationship didn't work out. And then I think there was just biologically still like a real pull for me. Um, and I guess we'll get to that later. But, you know, fostering was always going to be an option. Should I not have biological children? How long were you married for, and did you discuss wanting to have children with your ex-husband? Um, I was married for four years, and yeah, we talked about it all the time. And I think at that time, too, I was just fresh into the work, and you know, there were many kids I was excited about. Like, they ranged in ages. There were little ones, there were babies, there were teenagers, and I would often come home and be like, hey, <laughs> like this kid needs a home, and he was just not ready. And I think... In the end, it ended up being the right decision um, because it wouldn't have worked for us. Um, and it wouldn't have been good for the kids to go through the instability of that. So you, here you are in this marriage, which ultimately ended, um, having this desire to mother. So mm-hmm. once your relationship broke up, where did you place that desire? What happened next? I think... I did what a lot of people do, which is that you rush into like, okay, now I really have to find somebody. And I I have to say it really impacted my dating life because very soon I felt like I had to figure out whether somebody was going to be in my future very quickly. Um, And sometimes I was committing to people too fast. Um, And ultimately, I have to be thankful to them that they ended things with me because I think there was a level at which that I was rushing relationships in order to have a child. How old were you at this moment when you felt you were rushing relationships because you wanted to become a mother? What what stage in your life was this? Um, so I got divorced at 31. So it was between 31 and 35, 36, really, that it was really like urgently like trying to make it work. So you're here. You are. You're you're in the LA area. You're dating with the the with the so the so-called biological clock ticking loudly. Did you tell mm-hmm. dates that you wanted to become a mother? That this was a priority, and maybe it scared them off, or was that just something you were constantly thinking about and not sharing? Oh, it was totally scary for people dating. Like I thought it was really funny because I thought, you know. It was fun to date people in their 20s because they thought this was just fun. But then once they were my age, they were like, oh, this is pressure. (laughs) Um, And then it really was my brother who said, I really think life is going to maybe be backwards for you now. Like that it's not going to happen in the order that you think. And that maybe if you have a child on your own, you'll be more able to date more consciously. So let's talk about that because that's a very big proposal, have a child on your own. A lot of times we call that being a quote-unquote single mother by choice, and I've heard so many women say, well, it's not by choice. My choice was to have a partner and co-raise a child, but yeah, I was single and decided to have a child. Um, Can you tell us about that moment when your brother said that? Did that resonate with you? Were you ready for the challenge of being a single mother? Well, actually, during those years, I was living in New York. So it was even a harder decision because of the financial um, aspect of it. But at the same time, working in adoption, I had an office mate that was going through fertility stuff. And I was 36 and she was 42. And I think I just read this in one of your pregnantish articles where you said the counselor told a couple when they asked, did you have any regrets? And or asked, do people have regrets? And the answer was the regret was not trying sooner. 
And so my office mate at the time at this adoption agency in New York said, Selena, if I have any advice for you, it would be you need to start now. Start what now? Start thinking about having a child on your own now um, at 36. And the reason, too, was she encouraged me to go to Single Mothers by Choice um, in New York. And when I went, I realized that a lot of the women there were much older and having to do a lot more types of treatments. Um, And I think I had ruled it out because I didn't know. Like, for all that I knew about fertility from the adoption perspective, I always thought I went straight to IVF. Like, I didn't think that there was an option of getting just a sperm donor and being younger. I thought I had to save up, like, $20,000. To do the IVF treatment for $20,000 and go through all those weeks and shots. Um, But, quote, unquote, just getting a sperm donor is also a huge undertaking. So what what did you learn in the Single Mothers by Choice gathering? What what did they tell you? What did you feel inspired by or scared by? Mm Mm-hmm. I think I was scared by like, and I rem- I was thinking about this feeling when I was driving here today of like the high stakes gambling aspect of it. Like when you don't have a ton of money, feeling like, oh, every time I try this, it's a huge financial undertaking. Um, and so that was a huge piece of it um, and the emotional toll of it and sometimes feeling alone in it because I think culturally there's still an aspect of uh, people keeping it secret. Um, And even within the single mothers by choice, there was very much a talk about like everything that's here is like everybody has a choice and how much they share or not share. And for me, it was really big to always be open about it. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, the way we imagine these things to unfold, these things meaning every life moment, every life chapter, I certainly never imagined that I'd get married and then spend almost a decade trying to bring a baby into the world. So, so often this process of fertility is not linear. And I think being in these groups, just hearing from other women and men and, you know, people with different perspectives is power because then we realize, okay, there's a whole other family story narrative that's important for us to consider. And so that we don't feel like we're doing this on our own, uh, you know, the Wild West, no one's ever done this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what was your next step? Uh, When did you first contact a fertility clinic to explore your options and what what happened? It was almost... I feel like it was very soon after that office mate talked to me. I think I tried to feel things out with my parents first because I was thinking maybe I would need some support from them. Um, And the problem was, as soon as I tried to bring it up with my mom, she was like, well, you're not dating anybody anyway, so that's never going to happen. So, okay, we're like moving on, next conversation. So I just thought, wow, if I'm going to really do this, the person who's going to know is my brother. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Um, and honestly, I didn't tell my parents I was pregnant till like nine weeks later, like after I was pregnant. I was like terrified. What were and they you were what were you excited. scared about when you say you were terrified? Were you scared of judgment? What what were you scared about in sharing with them that you were going through this process of trying to get pregnant on your own? Um, judgment and the support, really. Um, like I would I had to really think through um how was I going to support this child? In the time I, you know, in living in New York, I was thinking maybe I'd have to move back to Toronto. Maybe I move back to LA. Certainly New York didn't seem like it would be possible as a single mother, as a social worker. 
Yeah, I mean, I get that. I live in New York. <laughs> so um, just the idea of even being partnered and bringing a child into the world is overwhelming with all the expenses. I can only imagine what it's like to go through something like that at that time. I mean, you're 36 years old, divorced, living in an expensive city. It makes the decision difficult. And then when you decide you want to have a sperm donor and work with one, how do you even pick one? Are you like flipping through a sperm donor book? <laughs> what is that like? Well, the first thing is that you get like, for free, you can look at like three pages, at least through the the clinic that I used. Um, I had decided to use the clinic that was actually going to do the treatment for me also because that was a, a cost factor. Um, I could have gone with a bank here in California and then use these tanks that get shipped and then the timing has to be right, but there's all these costs related to it. So at the clinic that I was with, there was a smaller number of donors I could choose from. And in that, I could look at for free like three pages that maybe had height, ethnicity, some very basic details. Um, And some of those really had... um, those health things too. There was like a grid where you could look at a history of diabetes, a history of cancer, um, many things like that. And then looking at what did they study? Where did they go to the school? Um, Maybe not the exact school, but what did they study and what did their parents study? And then I had the choice to pay for 25 pages. So then I had to decide how many 25 page profiles do I need? (laughs) I can't imagine. So three pages, I think would leave everyone wanting more, especially when we're talking about probably the most important decision of your life, uh, who is the biological father of your Mm -hmm. child, your future child. Did you pay for every three-pager that piqued your interest? Did you pay to read 25 pages? I only bought three. (laughs) You only bought three? And I only bought three. And one of the really funny stories that I tell people is one of the guys that I totally thought would have been one of my top people. I rolled him out because he said baseball on every page. <laughs> and and I like baseball. Like, I don't want to say like, oh, but that was weird because that feels like a dating thing, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't really matter. But it, it was just, I was now looking for a connection. And... It was interesting for me now that I had 25 pages, I was looking at the handwriting and I was looking at, I don't know, there was like, yeah, why why would it matter that this donor really liked baseball to the point of putting it on every page? I honestly don't know. But it was like a gut, like a gut feeling of this isn't right for me. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, I think singles also when they're dating have that gut feeling for no apparent reason. I didn't like the way he slurped his soup. (laughs) So Uh we will never go out again. But you know what? If you're annoyed by the little things, you do have to listen to your gut sometimes. With the profiles you saw, what was that like? Where Did you look in the clinic? Did you get to take home any to read them through? Did you have a friend next to you? Well, what was funny is that I had a really good friend that she and I disagreed about everything. And for some reason, I thought that she would be a good counter to me. And I wanted to know who she would choose of these people because I felt like maybe I've done it wrong. You know, clearly I'm single. Like, maybe I've just made wrong choices. What if I choose, like, this really good friend of mine who I just disagree with about almost everything and then see if we come up with the same person? And funnily enough, we ended up choosing the same number two, and that's who I ended up choosing. 
it is not my number one, not her number one, but because we agreed on number two, um, that was the first donor that I chose. It feels like a strange mm-hmm. social experiment, actually. Um, did, uh, maybe cameras should have rolled to watch. Wh- which one is she going to choose? Which door? But you pick number two. And then what happened? Well, then this is really funny. So I was in the clinic waiting for my first treatment. And then this guy walks in and he just carried himself differently. Like when somebody's going to a fertility clinic, you can tell who's there for the treatment. And then this guy was like, he looks weird. He's like taking off his coat and he has this confidence and everybody in the office seems to know him. And I'm like, that's my friend's number one. And I'm like, maybe I should change my mind because now I've seen this guy. And then at least I could tell my child when I had him, like I met him. And then I'm he's sitting there and he sits right next to me and he, he starts talking to me. And I'm like, oh, I could actually say I've had a conversation with the donor, even though it's anonymous. The clinic didn't have that many people. Like I could co- kind of guess by his hair color, his height, his ethnicity, like different things. I'm like, I think I know that's my friend's number one. And I actually was texting her saying, should I change my mind? And then I was like, no, we went through this big process. Like, I'm going to go with the decision that I did. And now you're, you're going in for what, an insemination or an egg retrieval? What, what happened next? So each time it was basically um, insemination, I had to go and they would just do an ultrasound, make sure my follicles were maturing properly, and then they would they would do it if it was right. And, you know, fortunately... I ovulated pretty regularly, and so basically for three months, it was this process, and each month, like I said, it was high-stakes gambling a little bit for me, which was, I didn't decide at the beginning how many times I was going to do this, but I don't know, maybe I just had that eternal optimism, like it wasn't going to take very long. I remember that first time I was like telling my close friends at work, like, I think I'm pregnant, and I totally (laughs) Yeah, Um, I've been there. I've I, I've I've had those yeah. moments in our many year journey where I said to my husband, "This is the month we're gonna have a summer mm-hmm. baby." It's, you know, but we need to have that optimism when we're going through fertility treatments because otherwise we're insane to keep going through it, right? Because it's not fun. It's expensive. Right. It's time consuming. It's painful on the body. How many inseminations did you do with sperm number? Sperm number, sperm donation, (laughs) sperm donor number two, door number two. How many times did you go through that? So what happened was it was three. And then the fourth time, the clinic kind of forgot to tell me either, I guess I have to tell it how it happened, which was I was sitting there ready. They told me my follicle was ready. I was about, I was sitting there ready. And, you know, um, I guess I do kind of a wash or something of the sperm or whatever. And the nurse came in and she like put her hands on the table and she's like, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you something. And I'm like, what? And she said, your donor is no longer available. Oh, and oh, number two is not available. She, right. He was no longer available. And then she's like, how about number so-and-so? And she just blurted out a number. And I was like, what? You, I took all of these months to decide on who I was going to choose. And now you're like, well, you're sitting here. How about this guy? Um, so I texted my friend that helped me choose. And I'm like, what do I do? Like, do I just say yes? Or do I go back home and forget about this month and, and just rethink this and go through all the lists again and, and really legitimately choose someone? And she's like, I'm in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> Whatever you decide is going to be great. Oh, my gosh. So, you're, you're, so are you in stirrups? Like, are you literally... 
in the office. I'm in the gown. You're in the gown. I'm in the gown, sitting on the table, like undressed, in the gown. And then when the nurse saw my face, on my reaction of how about so and so, she's like, "Let me just go and I'll give, I'll bring you like four three-page profiles." And then in the moment, I was like, "You know what? This clinic knows these guys. Maybe I should just go with it." <laughs> so I read the four that she brought in. And I realized, you know, going back to the dating question, that the reason I probably never chose that first guy that she was recommending to me was that he was 5'8". <laughs> You're a bit of a hiatus. It's a very superficial thing. Yes. So, you know, I'm super short. And the first guy, like, I always thought I needed a guy that was over six feet tall so that if I had a child, that my child would be tall enough. And I was just like, you know, maybe there's something about this guy, like, that she would throw his number out that quickly. And this is probably going to be my last shot anyway. Um, after this, I'm going to move back to California. I'm going to adopt a child out of foster care. Um, I, I can't do this anymore. And so I was like, what's the big deal? I didn't even buy the 25-page profile. <laughs> like, I was just like, just do it. And if I get pregnant, then I'll buy the 25-page How much page was profile. the 25-page? Like, I, pa- I need what? to know the difference between three pages and 25 pages at the clinic. How much is a 25-page profile? How much yes. does it cost? It was only 25 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so for 25 bucks, no, nope, I'm not going to pay 25 bucks to read all about this donor. And maybe, do you think it was because in a way you were letting the universe or whatever you want to call it kind of decide for you? Oh, absolutely. I was just like, I just need to throw this out in the universe at this point. And it was almost like if I bought the profile, I was worried my hopes would get too high. Yeah, because it is a lot of pressure. I'm thinking about it. If you are looking through 25 pages of multiple profiles, it's dizzying online dating to look through, to swipe through very small paragraphs. So that's a lot of pressure to feel like you're picking the quote-unquote perfect uh, donor. I mean, the, the perfect father of my child, biological father, that's a lot of pressure. So in a way, I can see the appeal in just uh, releasing the decision to who the, the clinic, mm-hmm. to the universe, to someone else. Yeah, it was honestly very freeing. Um, and you know what was so great is that after I found out that I was pregnant and I got to see the profile, I realized number two had a motivation like that i mean the question that mattered the most to me in some ways was what was the motivation for the donor to be doing this and i always had this tweak in my brain about number two that the one question i didn't like his answer to was the question of why are you doing this and it was basically to spread his seed and have more have biological children out in the world. And I was thinking, but you'll never see them. Like, is that the right motivation? But I was just like, I'm just going to turn it away because he's tall, like super smart, has like a PhD in mathematics or something like this. And and then the second guy, it was just perfect because, you know, his mother was like a marriage and family therapist, which was what I studied. And his motivation was just so beautiful. Like somebody had just told me in becoming a single parent to just be brave and courageous and just jump right in. And his motivation had those words in Mm. it. You know, be brave and courageous and your family will be a beautiful Oh, you're getting emotional. And I am too. That's so beautiful. Why, Why are you getting emotional? I think it was just one of the ways that the universe felt like it was confirming that it was... 
it was right and that there was a reason it didn't work out with the first one and that and that my kid was going to be great you know and he is and and that all those superficial things that I was thinking about like weren't going to matter and that I sometimes you have to trust people that you think don't know you that's a powerful lesson actually whether or not we're talking about sperm donation just to to trust and so did you tell your or have you told your child your son about this donor his biological father or is this something you will share later I share bits with him all the time like he's always known that he doesn't have a traditional dad he knows I use the word donor dad um I'm I'm married now so he has another father figure in his life but he is not ready to call him dad yet so it's an interesting process um for us as a mom and a kid going through this that I'm I'm leading the way but also letting him uh, guide me of what feels comfortable for him to. This feels like such a modern family. In fact, all the, the fertility stories I hear lately just sounds like modern family stories. That's what it is. The Brady Bunch 2.0. I mean, your, your, your picture, you're remarried again. And does your current husband have his own children from his previous relationship? Or did he come in? Yes. So he has two kids who are older. <laughs> Um, from a previous marriage. So your son has a, a blended family, um, but he doesn't call your husband dad. He knows he has a donor dad. It's it's so interesting. What does he tell his friends, or, or what do you tell the community when they ask? Well, at the moment, the language that he has is, I don't have a dad, I have a stepdad. Um and that's comfortable for him. Like, I'm always looking for, is there any shame in how he's expressing it? Um, and actually, his his Montessori school, when he was younger, was always nervous about what should he say. And I said, don't, don't say it with any sort of hesitation. Don't be nervous about it. Don't, like, I just want it to be just a fact and just a normal thing. And I want him to be okay with it. And... I think they did great with that whenever I asked them to, but I, I did recognize their nervousness. And I just said that I just don't want that for my you're, child. You're totally right, because research actually shows that um, children who come into the world through adoption, foster care, fertility treatments, you know, of course, I have a child who was carried by someone else, my cousin. Uh, these are all stories that the children should know, but we don't want to tell the story with any shame or secrecy because then the children take that on. So what's normal to children is what we make normal. And when a child Absolutely. is around four or five, we can tell them their family story proudly. How old is your son now? And at what point did you tell him about donor dad? He's seven. He turned seven in February. And I can't even name a date. I think that that's how it is, is like when you don't have shame around it, you don't have a sit down, serious conversation about it. It's a constant. Um, and it's just a part of your life. And I don't know that he would be able to say when he knew or when he didn't know. I think he would say he's always known. When you tell people today or even told them then, single mother by choice, I'm doing this on my own. Did you get judgment, support? What was the overall reaction when you shared it with people? 
I've had so much support. Honestly, there are women who reach out to me on Facebook all the time who I barely know asking me, should they do this? What was my decision process? Or somebody knows somebody that wants to talk to me. And it's partly because I have I don't have any shame about it. And I'm willing to talk to strangers about it. I think that that's one of the things that a lot of women struggling with this want to talk to somebody, but they don't know anybody who's completely open. Um, and so I've had so much support. I love that. So if if this, the sperm donor were listening to this interview, what would you tell him about his biological son? Just you asking that question made me pretty emotional. Um, well, for one, I'm super grateful um, that he made that choice. I don't know really what his reasoning was at that time. I know that a lot of people do it partially for financial reasons, but I really hung on to the words that he said in his profile that he was doing it to help someone. Um, But my son is, you know, the one thing, my son and I just talked about this in the car yesterday, which was interesting. Um, he was talking about curiosity, and I said, you know, curiosity is one of my highest values, and it was one of the things that I really wanted you to be as you got older. And he's like, oh, that's cool. What What was the other things? And I said, kindness and integrity. And so it was just a conversation that my son and I had, and so if I was to talk to the donor, that's what I would say about him, that he's a curious, kind kid with a lot of integrity. Mm, so beautiful. Ah, oh, gosh, I I love I love 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 your family story. Thank you so much for sharing it. It's um, inspiring to me. I had such a, a nonlinear path to my parenthood, of course, and your story um, I'm sure gives many other women out there who are thinking of bringing a child into the world without a partner currently a lot of hope. Um, and I'm sure many are curious using using that word uh, about this process after hearing our interview. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for asking me. I love sharing my story with you. And now we're going to talk to someone that we don't often get to hear from when it comes to sperm donation. The sperm donor. For the sake of anonymity, we're going to call him Mike. Now, some donation is open and some is anonymous. In this case, Mike was anonymous. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And can you introduce yourself? Well, I, uh, I, I live in a big city. And about 20 years ago or more, I, I became a sperm donor. And um, I trained to be a scientist. And I was surrounded by scientists and doctors. And uh, some of us decided that it would be kind of interesting to help out infertile couples. Uh, and so I and two friends became, I guess, what you would call a professional sperm donors. And uh, um, I was very busy for two years and four months. Um, I was, I think, averaging one pregnancy a month. So um, it was it was wonderful, actually. I enjoyed it a great deal because I, I got a kick out of the fact that I could, uh, you know, allow couples that one, one of them was infertile, like they wanted children so badly to be able to just do something very simple and allow that to happen was, was kind of in and of itself its own reward. So let's talk about the money, actually. What were you paid back in the early 90s when you donated? Do you remember? 
uh, I started by getting paid fifty dollars a sample, and then I, you know, I got a promotion, and it went up to sixty. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I, so, <laughs> I will tell you, it's a lot more now. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah. But I mean, I mean, uh, part of it was I actually wanted to do it, and so I, I the money was not important. It was a small amount of money for me back then. It, w- it wasn't that much, and also for the other donors as well. I think all uh, in this particular clinic, there was I think a small group of us, and and I think we did it for altruistic reasons mostly. Uh, not for money. Um, it's fun to have an extra fifty bucks, but it was, you know, not meaningful. The money wasn't your motivating uh, factor. N- not at all. No. Well, and and for those who don't know, sperm donation versus egg donation, uh, very different um, in terms of money, both for what it costs the patient, but also what the donor receives even today, because the process to grow eggs and make eggs and retrieve eggs. Uh, takes a lot longer and is is harder than producing sperm. So. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, there's a friend of mine who was an egg donor, and I, I believe that she's injected with, as you probably know, hormones, and it changed her mood. It was pretty uh, something that she felt and noticed, and it was work. So it's not about the money for you. It's about the science. You're in the sciences now, but when you started donating, were you in school? I had uh, just finished my degrees, and uh, I had started a job. Um, And while at the job, um, uh, friends of mine were still in graduate school, and other friends were in internships in medicine or in medical school. And I think we all sort of inspired each other. It wasn't just uh, donating sperm or egg cells. It was also blood, plasma, stem cells, all kinds of things we were donating to science or to medicine. It was kind of a general, almost like a biological charity, you know, because, you know, it's so easy to fix a problem, as I said before. And uh, we thought, that this is great. We can do this. How did you know you guys were good candidates to donate sperm? Well, the clinic I went to, uh, the clinic screened our DNA. And actually, I went to one clinic, and a friend of mine, two, two of my friends went to other clinics. But they did a, a, a screening to check for anything they could back then that could, would show up as a genetic marker for a defect. And uh, it turns out that my DNA was fine. Um, and they asked a lot of questions before they accepted uh, any of us. Uh, and uh, they uh, tested us uh, every six months for, you know, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. They were very cautious uh, with the samples just to make sure that the, that the patient was safe. Uh, so we, a screening and interview, that's how they, that's how they uh, uh, got to us. So they screened us. you. And, and how old were you at this time? You said you did it for over two years. Yeah, that's right. I was in my 20s at the time. And um, at the time, I didn't realize this, but I was also, uh, at least the, this is going to sound a little bit odd, but I was I was hyper-fertile, <laughs> 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 which sounds like bragging, but it, but it was unusual. I discovered, they discovered that one sample could be used for two women. And I thought oh, that was really a kind of a flattering thing in an odd sort of animal way. But, you know, that was like, wow, that was, you know, so, th- so they began to use me a lot, I think, because they they had a lot of um, uh, couples where the father was infertile, and the reasons for the infertility were maybe not 100% known, but but they were running out of time. You know, married couples, there's only that window for women to get pregnant. Um, but uh, the clinic was uh, run by a very wonderful uh, fertility doctor, and uh, uh, she sat down and explained a lot of things to me about all kinds of things. I already uh, knew a great deal about human biology, but this, but she, this was her specialty. And I, I learned about uh, the fact that a lot of men are infertile but don't know it until they try to become fathers. 
Um, we we see that too. You know, over thirty percent of infertility is male factor, and that's such an undertold story. But you know deeply about that because you were helping these couples. That's right. And and the 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 the, the fertility doctor who ran the clinic. She she made a few guesses. She thought it was probably due to stress. Um, she thought it might be due to older fathers trying to be fathers. Sometimes uh, the sperm count is low. Um, and uh, But she blamed stress, and alcohol, and drug use. She mm. thought the combination of all three seemed to might have had an effect on her, her particular uh, uh, patient population. I'm not sure how she came up with that. Well, it's interesting because I, stress is obviously a factor in health in general, but with fertility, sometimes there's actually medical infertility that no amount of relaxation will, will solve. We know that now. Yeah. But maybe even then, and it is different male factor versus female factor. I'm curious about that very first time you stepped into the clinic to donate. Can you walk us through that experience? Uh, sure. Um, I was asked to, uh, um, the way the procedure went was very simple. I received a phone call the night before, and it said, this is so-and-so's office. Could you stop by for a visit? It was very, very, you know, almost clandestine. And uh, I would produce the sample in the morning, and I would place it in a jar and put it in a bag and put my initials on it and then place it in a, a dresser in the lobby. And then uh, it would get picked up by the clinic, and the clinic would use it for one particular patient that day. And, of course, as you probably know, there's a peak period of ovulation. So the, all fertility doctors try to hit that peak to make sure that uh, there's a good chance of fertilization. And so the timing was very important. Um, and it was, um, it was always in the morning. And the night before was always the phone call. Mm -hmm. uh, and she gave me some advice on how to uh, increase my own fertility. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, besides the obvious things, uh, nutrition, exercise, health in general will probably help for most men, I imagine. Uh, and then she recommended that for me as well. It's like you were a substitute teacher. You're, to, you're called the night before to drop off the next morning. So did you have to be kind of spontaneous during this whole period of donating your sperm? Uh, yes, I had to be spontaneous because I did not know when the call would come. And uh, and when it did come, it was kind of fun. It was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm producing for somebody another child. <laughs> that, and that's a great feeling, actually. Uh, well, let's talk about that feeling because, you know, you're in your 20s at the time. Yeah. And it, you're doing it in the name of science to help infertile couples, but you're also producing children. Um, what at the time were you thinking about that? And then I want to ask you more about how you're relating to it now. But at the time when you were uh, donating sperm and realizing you were helping infertile couples bringing a child into the world, did you ever think about that? Um, I I did think about that all the time. I thought about the future. So when I donated, in the back of my head, I thought, you know, there's a small chance that one of them or two of them would find me. And it turns out one of them did find me. Uh, and that was interesting. She found me last year. She was looking for her biological father. And um, uh, she contacted me through a website. And then I sent her a message saying, you know, send your DNA into this particular place, check it and see if it matches mine. And it did. And August of last year, I discovered uh, my first biological daughter. I am so excited. I So just for the listeners who don't know, uh, Mike, we're going to call you Mike for this interview. And I spoke two years ago when we launched Pregnantish, and you were eager to connect with some of your biological children at the time. But you, of course, can't look for them. They have to find you. So 
what was that like when you were contacted? Well, the moment I saw the DNA test, um, I started crying because it was a hundred percent match. And um, about ten years ago, I started the process of, of reaching out to the uh, donor offspring. I uh, put my name and description and dates on a special website that connected donor children to their uh, donor father and mother and also to each other. On that website, um, I had two previous people contact me, but it turns out their dates were off. Although the clinic was correct, they were either older or younger than when I was donating, so uh, they weren't my own children. But the third person to contact me through the site um, she she wrote something really straightforward. She said, "I think you're my father." Wow! <laughs> and uh, and then uh, and then I said, "Let's find out," and uh, we did. Walk so. me through that moment when you both found out it was a match. Well, I'm not directly in contact with her. I'm just in contact informally through email, but um, or through websites basically. Uh, but but um, I don't know what she thought. Uh, but I was so happy uh, to find at least one of them uh, because there is approximately 30 of them. and uh, 30 biological children that you produced from your donor sperm. That's correct. That's my estimate. Um, based on the number of times that I donated as well as the frequency of pregnancies. Uh, wow. So you're in a big city uh, and there are a lot of people, but do you look around and wonder that, you know, do you look at someone and think that person looks like me? I wonder if we're related. Once in a while I do. You know, I'll, I'll see somebody who uh, looks very much like, you know, a family member and they're the right age. And I pause and I go, oh, you know, I mean, the chances are very small, but still, it was this uh, big urban area that I donated in. And so, uh, you know, I mean, the, the people who were the couples, I think they probably live still in this big area. So, yes, uh, I might have even seen uh, one of them by accident at one point. Um, I told all of my relatives when I found uh, this particular offspring, um, I have her pic several pictures of her, and I, I sent it to some of the relatives, and they said, oh, my God, that's your daughter. <laughs> your biological daughter. Biological daughter, that's correct. That's well, that, it. But this yeah. is a good question. Did your family know when you were donating sperm that you had all of the, this offspring? Uh, yes, I told them right away. Um, and uh, uh, they thought it was interesting. They wanted me to, of course, get married and have offspring that they could know. <laughs> uh, that did not happen, uh, but that's, that's okay. I think they're okay with that. There were a lot of other kids around. So so let me get this straight. You have 30-ish children, biological children, Correct. but you never raised your own children. I never raised my own children, no. I mean, in my 20s, one of the reasons I donated was that um, the women that I had gone out with had very little interest in, in becoming uh, parents. Uh, and, uh, and in the back of my head, I thought, oh, well, well, why not, right? Just in case, and be fun when I'm over 45 to meet one of them. Uh, and, uh, and there's a possibility of that. But again, that's up to the, up to the donor offspring for that. Um, did you ever try to have your own children with any of your partners? Uh, no, I did not. You have um, 30 or so biological children. You never had your own children. There's definitely a dichotomy there. How do you feel about that? Um, I wish at times I had my own children. Um, uh, the nature of the different relationships, I think, uh, 
for complicated reasons, that wasn't uh, something that was very possible uh, without going into too much detail. And uh, so throughout my life, uh, in my 30s and 40s, this was always in the back of my head, the, the fact that there were uh, children out there, biological children out there, and that uh, there, was a, there was a possibility of meeting them, and that was sort of comforting uh, because it's like, okay, this can be very interesting. Um, and I believe the, the one that contacted me, she wrote a letter initially, and in the letter, she sounded just like my sister. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I read this, and then I showed it to one of my relatives, and they said, oh, yeah, she's related to us. <laughs> that must feel wild. It's a strange feeling. It was uh, very bold, very honest, very straightforward, maybe a touch of impatience. And it was like, wow, this sounds like one of my relatives. And I was that also was surprised me, too. And I, I mean, I know a great deal about uh, genetics and, and, again, human biology, and I think uh, you, you probably do as well. So... Um, you know, personality types do pop up in families. You know, it's not unusual to have a nephew that's just like a great uncle or something like that. It's part of it is genetic. And so it's not, it's not surprising, but it's just still shocking. You know, it's still shocking. They're, some of the relatives in my family are pretty, they're very bold people. They don't really put up with a lot of stuff. <laughs> and so this is how she sounded in the letter a little bit. And I just thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. She wasn't a little wallflower. Oh, not at all. Not at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell through the years, did you tell friends, dates? I know you told your family about yeah. this, but did you start sharing with everybody that you had donated over 30 times? I did. I told close friends. And uh, I told them also that it gave me a certain amount of joy to know that there were 30 biological offspring out there. Uh, and what would be really wonderful if they found each other as siblings, and then it would turn into like a Vince Vaughn movie, you know, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and then they would meet each other, have picnics, and, you know, get to know each other. It'd be like a sort of a second family for them. Uh, my feeling was, and, and so this is what my also my relatives thought this as well, that the ones who would contact me would be the ones who had maybe parents, one or two parents who were deceased. or And that was the case with this particular person. Um, and that's when maybe people start to open up because they, have, they already have full families and full relationships. Um, the, the curiosity component might also come in when they start having their own kids and they would like to know, is there something they should know about their ancestry? In fact, that's what I wrote in the note uh, to the biological daughter. I said, you know, if you, if you are about to get married and have kids or, you know, if you want to know something medical about the family, I can describe the, the, the family's uh, medical history. Um, that, that's super important to so many, well, all of us, but, yeah. but what a nice thing to offer. Um, how about the men that you donated to in these couples? Did, were you ever contacted by any of the couples or the men? No, none of them. Um, I accidentally saw two of the couples walk into the clinic, and so I knew that they were the couples. I mean, I, you know, you're, I'm supposed to be anonymous, and so I could never go up to them. But, you know, those particular two couples, at a glance, they looked like they were in their early to mid-30s, and uh, um, they maybe had married a little bit later, and, and they, they had some issue with infertility, and so they were trying to, you know, have as many kids as possible before it's all over, so to speak, you know. 
uh, otherwise, not, no, no letters, no notes. Um, this clinic made sure that everyone was anonymous, and they did a very good job. The, the few times that you did see the couples walking into the clinic who you were essentially donating your sperm to, how did you feel about that, or what, what was your process, your thought process in that moment? Well, I looked at uh, the two couples, and I, I'm not 100% sure they were the ones, but because it was Sunday morning, I imagine that they were the only ones going to the clinic, and I have a feeling that, uh, or at least early morning, Saturday or Sunday, uh, um, I was pretty sure that they were the couples that were going to uh, receive the, the sperm donation. And I looked at both couples, and I looked at the father first, and the first question I asked myself is, huh, does he look like me? And the answer was usually close enough. And then the second thing, as I watched the couples, as they sort of touched each other and how affectionate they were, I said, oh, good. That's a good sign, too. (laughs) (laughs) And those were the two things I noticed uh, for both couples as they walked in. And then I walked away quickly, and I tried to, you know, put my, my, pull my my, uh, hat over my head and, you know, pretend I wasn't really in the clinic at all. (laughs) I sneaked away. How often do you think about the people who are making families with your samples? Over the years, I've interviewed a number of people who've used donors, whether it was a sperm donor or an egg donor, and I've never heard, to this day, anyone who's had a regret about it. So each person that had a child from a donor says it was a really positive decision. Uh, so that's a that's a great thing. But the donor, you being a donor, your perspective, what's your ideal scenario if you got contacted by more of your biological offspring? Um, would you like to have a regular relationship, introduce them to your whole family, have family outings, dinners? What What do you imagine? Um, I would like to have them. Uh, uh, it would be great if they were interested in uh, having some kind of contact with me. It could be occasionally having dinner. It could be I helping them out on something as in, as in their adult lives. Uh, it could be them meeting other relatives and discovering they have a new network to allow them a, sort of a maybe more access to things in life. I mean, the more fam- relatives you have who you like, <laughs> the better the, the better life can be. And, and uh, you know, as I have a feeling for uh, some of these, these um, you know, some people uh, have very small families and they don't quite know what that's like to have so many people around that could potentially help them in their own lives that are related to them, have maybe more of a motivation. Uh, so I would like to have a, a relationship with all of them that's up to the level they want to have it at. Uh, that they're comfortable with. It would be great to be able to go to one of their weddings, for example, although that could be awkward if... (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you won't walk the person down the aisle. (laughs) That's right. I wouldn't do that. I'd stand in the back and wave and I'd, you know, give support. I think that's... (laughs) That's that's, that's amazing. So you, you mentioned before that a lot of men in your situation as sperm donors preferred to be anonymous, stay anonymous. Why do you think that is? What do you think is different about their experience versus your uh, framework around it? I think men, uh, I, would, I would imagine that donors want to be anonymous because they uh, will create their own private lives. And I think they don't want necessarily somebody from another family or uh, area or whatever to come into their lives when they're trying to develop their own private lives with one woman and one set of kids. Uh, so I think that's, that might be one of the motivations for staying anonymous. Um, also, uh, w- one of the reasons that I, I'm, uh, only want to meet donor ch- children that uh, 
uh, want to meet me later in life is because they did not want to interfere with, you know, the relationship uh, with their own parents. I mean, what if a, a donor offspring has a, a, a bad relationship with both parents? I mean, that could happen. Um, I didn't want to be the person that the donor offspring ran to and said, you know, look, here's my real bi- biological father, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh-oh, I don't want to be in the middle of that family drama. That's not where I want to be. And so in some ways, I think maybe that's also one of the reasons why uh, donors say anonymous. They, they don't want the potential extra drama of having a biological child know them. Um, and uh, that might be the main motivation. You know, one of the uh, one of the people who asked me to be a donor, um, the uh, um, the the father had had a condition that prevented him from being fertile, um, and they wanted to, you know, they, they that was something they wanted to keep secret. The infertility uh, part of that. So there's a there's a you know there's several things going on. One is that when men you know, here they are. They're some men are you know, big football players. They're muscular. They're they're athletic. They run around and they get married and they're ready to have kids and they're infertile. And it's probably humiliating for some of them. Uh, some of them that are kind of modern know that this is not a this is nothing to do with you. This is just a biological thing. There may be a mystery as to why it's happening. You know, there's all kinds of reasons for infertility. Uh, but it is for some men just like, um, you know, humiliating. Uh, I, I think that's a very true point for both men and women going yeah. through infertility. It really challenges, I can speak personally, challenges your sense, your sexuality, your sense of self, your identity. We often think about procreation as such a natural thing. And for many of us with medical issues, we can't. And that's why it's so important for people like you to be donors. Mike, thanks so much for coming into the studio, sharing your incredibly interesting story. And I hope that you find more of your biological children. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Pregnant Podcast. We love these family stories. And if you have an amazing path to parenthood story or know someone who does, we would love to hear from you. Check out the show's notes and you can see how to reach us because we are going to continue to tell these amazing modern family stories here on this podcast. If you like the podcast, please continue listening to future episodes. Tell your friends, tell your family. Tune in again. Thanks for listening.